Mockups are invaluable. I mean, they, you know, there's a lot that happens between when we stamp a set of plans and when someone's out building, especially in, in this day and age with all of the supply chain issues and, you know, people wanted, they were hoping to get one product yeah. and, and they're waiting now nine months before it'll show up and they've yeah. got to change to something else. And so we can work with them and, and find, you know, substitutes and such. Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 79 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, RH Investment Group. And Ray Herto, RH Investment Group. And joining us today is our guest. Matt Martin at the Boston Planning Development Agency. AKA the BPDA, AKA, well, sort of the BRA. Formerly, Formerly known, known as. Known as the Was there any other FKAs? I don't think so. Uh, not unless you go back to the 1950s and then <laughs> we weren't even, a, you know, the same entity. So I'm going to say no. So let's nice. start. Let's start with the basics here. Um, for folks that aren't familiar, maybe they're not from Boston. Um, what is the BPDA? What's their function? And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll give you that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason for the name change is, you know, I think we wanted to make it clear that we do development and we do planning, right? And Planning is first, and that's something that we're focused on, you know, in our neighborhoods, looking at long range, long term planning, use mix, um, you know, big picture planning, economic development goals. And then uh, in the, you know, more, you know, near term, we look at development projects. So active building projects, some of like your own, where they're looking to move forward with permits and, and start right away. And so we're really looking at both scales, you know, the, the macro, the long term and then the very, very short term and near term. Cool. If if we had a spectrum here and Texas was on one end of the spectrum where it's sort of like you own your land, you build what you want, and let's call Paris the other end of the spectrum, which is like a very controlled city where everything fits in a very neat box, where, where would you put Boston on that uh, spectrum? Well, you know, we're probably somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, we we have somewhat conservative zoning when you look at, you know, what gets built in the city. And so that ensures that, you know, there's a ample process where, you know, community voices are heard and design review happens and, uh, you know, a host of city departments, whether parks department or landmarks or others, environment, have a voice and, and help guide outcomes. And so I think the realization is, is it's very hard to plan long term. Right. And so we're a nimble organization where there is a lot of review, you know, it's a long process. It's not like Texas where you walk in and you pull your permit mm -hmm. and you're off building the two by four is <laughs> alive the next day. And it's there you go. Yeah. But it also allows us to be much more coordinated and, and able to achieve a lot more of the goals that, that the city has by, by having these different review mechanisms. Cool. Cool. And what would trigger sort of the engagement process? Because I think we've got, at least here locally, there's larger projects, which I think your agency's involved in right from the get-go. And then there's other projects that are under that radar or under that threshold, if you will, where they come in kind of after the fact, after you've gotten the blessing, if you will, from the zoning board. And then there's other projects which don't require any review. Is that accurate? So as maybe right. like a short form or as of right? How often does the zoning board approve a project that does not involve, that does not have a BPDA design review proviso? Wait, that was going to be um, one of my questions. I've never, uh, if ever, you, yeah, well, yeah, it's a tangent, but I, yeah, I, well, I, I <laughs> it's just a question. I'm not sure I know Curious. the exact answer. I know that 
maybe five or six years ago, there was a concerted effort to try to pull out projects that really didn't have physical changes that, you know, we had, we used to be getting restaurants that were doing a takeout license or a change of occupancy, things where the ownership had changed the variances were granted to one group. So I think we've tried to really work to ensure, you know, look, if there's no physical changes happening here, we don't need to be involved. So I know we've pulled some of them out of the mix, but, but I couldn't tell you numbers wise where, where we're at on that. So just to boil it down, if you go through a project that's 15 units or greater, you're into Article 80, as we call it. And that would be small project review. Is uh, it unit count? I thought it's square footage also. Both. both. Right. You know, the benefit of those projects is, as, as Ray alluded to, you're working with an urban planner from the city from the outset and the building and the design takes shape in sort of a collaborative way. Whereas if you're under that threshold, you sort of run on your own. You're working with the community and the neighborhood groups. You seek your zoning variances, and then you are approved, perhaps, with a proviso, uh, approved with design review of the BPDA. And that's when you meet a lot of projects as well. Sure. Yeah. So the threshold is either 15 units or 20,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. And anything north of that, you're either in a small project or once it's 50,000 square feet, then you're in large project review where it starts to get into, you know, doing traffic studies and and wind tunnels. Wind, environmental, yeah. those sort of things. Wind studies like fifteen grand. Is that always the case? I, there's some there's some computer modeling now that will yeah. do some of it. But yeah, if you're talking about going into the um, the turbine and, and the wind tunnel itself, I'm, I know it's costly. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Well, yeah. Pex, Pex was supposed to reduce the cost of plumbing, but that hasn't happened from, from <laughs> copper. So it's all the same. Even the best software, is, they're not going to charge less. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> right. Market market demand rules. Right. Yeah, but then, then so the other triggers are sometimes our reviews written into underlying zoning. So you might be in an overlay district, for, for example, a green belt protection. Or you know, you're on your Parkway, VFW Parkway. We want to make sure you have a planted buffer along your edge of your property, or it may even be what's called the neighborhood design overlay district, which is you know more of a historic level of review. So those, even if you're an as of right, you might see us. And then, of course, there's the true as of right where you have no involvement with, mm-hmm. with our department at all. And then there's the, you know, the also the Zoning Board of Appeal where, where quite often we are involved um, per the Zoning Board's proviso. And so what what exactly is your purview into, into a project in general? Are you, what are you allowed, what are you collaborating on? What are you advising a developer on or homeowner who's renovating or putting an addition on, you know, are you touching, are you focusing on the exterior primarily? Are you focusing on the interior? What are your kind of constraints? And and is it true that color is not a constraint that like, if I provide a rendering, uh, an urban review planner cannot say it should be red or it should be blue. Is that (laughs) fact or fiction? Well, you know, so the color question we try not to get into color, particularly on smaller neighborhood projects. Yeah. Although if you, you know, part of your, your public process is you go out in front of your commu- community group and you show them a red brick building mm-hmm. and they all say, we love that red brick building. And then lo and behold, you show up at BPDA design offices with a uh, blue clapboard building. That's <laughs> that's going to be an issue. So we, you know, we don't have a lot of, you know, we might be in- influenced by, you know, more historic neighborhood on colors. But for the most part, the smaller projects, it's left to the developers and, and what, you know, and, and what, what happens through the community process. And, you know, I think if it's a larger project, it might be a different story where, you know, 
we have a much more collaborative process with mm -hmm. the neighborhood and we hear not only about color, but, you know, is it, should it be more traditional? Should it be more modern? But it's interesting how much it's changed because in the, you know, the larger projects, the, the article 80 projects, it used to be our urban design, even, you know, five, six years ago was really mo mostly on aesthetics. And now with all of the new environmental, you know, review and, and um, ordinances that have been passed, we're into, for example, the sea fraud or the um, flood protection overlay district. We're looking a lot more at grading plans and do you need to raise your site? And, you know, Article 37, which is the green building part of our code, where we're looking much more at, at your utility systems and what are the impacts of that? And we start looking more at, you know, some of the requirements around stormwater retention and how does that affect your site plan? So it's definitely gotten much more complicated as a lot more of these environmental regulations have come into play and, and play out whether in your site plan review or the building review. Yeah, let's dive into the bigger projects again on topic here. Uh, so you're right there from the onset that we a developer would submit their plans and say, I want to build you know, 50 units or, you know, 100,000 square feet of, of space. Then somehow there's a trigger, usually from inspectional services. They'll say, okay, here's the plans. You're rejected because it obviously doesn't fit on any parcel here in Boston, at least. And then your office is notified. And then you have, is there like a cap to the number of meetings or how long is the process generally allowed to go on for? Because we're all familiar with the community meetings. Everyone has different opinions. And at what point do we reach consensus and how long do we let that process play out? So for the larger projects, you know, a project manager is assigned and that person, you know, they're, they're going to be your shepherd through the process and they're going to make sure that you go to the community meetings. They're going to make sure that they get you in front of elected officials and in front of the, you know, design staff and, and other staff members at the BPDA. And, you know, I like to say, you know, folks that are, are, are listening to what's happening and, and sort of mindful of the input can move through the process very quickly. And it, you know, might, might be nine months. It could be year it is not unusual when you, when you think of the, all of the steps board of appeal and everything else, but folks who are less inclined to be good listeners, it could, <laughs> it could go on for quite a while. And, you know, I think at the end, it's it, it sort of it becomes a negotiation, right? But sure. that's in a nutshell, I'd say. You go through the whole process, you get back a stamp set of plans that says, you know, we bless this design. This looks good to us. And eight months later, you're out walking in the neighborhood and you see the building that was supposed to have a, you know, brick facade is, I'll make an exaggerated statement, vinyl siding. <laughs> what what happened? Has that happened before? And, and, and then what do you do? That has happened. It is quite rare. I mean, you know, we'll see more, much more modest tweaks. Yeah, that, that, I, I that's was, probably yeah. more common. Went very extreme there, Mark. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like three <laughs> more stories were added to this building. <laughs> yeah, I've heard yeah. of that. I, I have too. The more egregious ones, I, you know, we we get sometimes the calls from the neighbors. Who, you know, during yeah. construction, but you know, they got a camera and their phone, and the the photos are flowing like never before. And yeah. and, and all of a sudden, we have to contact someone at inspectional services department to go out and take a look at what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so we, we try to get involved with those as soon as we find out. But in the cases where it, it, you know, it goes on, you know, and no one's aware, we have to go out and it, it is very difficult. But, you know, we certainly don't want to reward bad behavior. And so mm -hmm. we'll be reasonable about what's possible to change at that moment in time. There's certainly not 
something where we just drop the standards because yeah. someone's decided to plow ahead and, and yeah. not follow the rules. And on a big project, what, what would help is the mock-up. So typically we'll have an obligation to produce a mock-up which shows any number of different of the elements of the building to follow. And we'll meet out on site and look at that before the mason shows up or, you know, the sidewallers there. So yeah, mock-ups are invaluable. I mean, they, you know, there's a lot that happens between <clears throat> when we stamp a set of plans and when someone's out building, especially in, in this day and age with all of the supply chain issues and, you know, people wanted, they were hoping to get one product yeah. and, and they're waiting now nine months before it'll show up and they've yeah. got to change to something else. And so we can work with them and, and find, you know, substitutes and such. My challenge on them is sometimes we're in this tight infill lot and there really isn't space for it. And we've tried to do it off site, and sometimes we get a little bit of pushback. What's your feeling uh, on that? Well, you know, I, I've had some folks where they literally built the mock-up into the front of the building because yeah. that was the only place it was going to see any daylight because mm -hmm. the site was just too, you know, it didn't make sense to try to cram it into mm -hmm. a dark corner where you'd never see the colors in, the, in a true fashion mm -hmm. anyway. So I think being creative and, you know, maybe you start framing out the front of the building before you normally would so that you can have something to apply your mock-up to and, and where it's going to be seen in a, in a true-to-life way with the proper solar orientation. But in real extreme cases, we have made exceptions where we'll choose an offsite look. Once you've gone through this whole BPDA set of stamped plans and you're ready to go, you still have to go in front of the ZBA, right? That's still the next procedural As step. As part of small and large project review, correct? Yeah. Do they ever like fight you guys on what you've already kind of given the green light to? I shouldn't say fight you, but you know, do they ever deny anything? I mean, it's, I'm happened. Sure it's, it's happened. happened before. It happened yeah. recently on a larger project in East Boston. This answer's not typically. But yeah, there it's kind of like the unofficial blessing, yeah. if you will. Actually, yeah, let's go ahead, Dan. I was going to just switch gears maybe a little bit and talk about design in general, because, you know, Boston is a pretty, as you were saying earlier, a pretty conservative city, right? When it comes to design and architecture and, you know, when, when we typically, when in the past, when we've gone to community meetings, you know, and proposed something on the more modern side, we get a ton of, usually get a ton of pushback. I guess my question to you is like, wh where do where does the BPDA fit into those discussions, and what what does the BPDA like to typically see? You know, are you, do you lean more towards the kind of traditional architecture that Boston has been in the past, or do you do you like to see, you know, developers pushing the boundary from an architectural standpoint? Well, I, th I think we first and foremost we take our cues from the neighborhood process. So if we've heard very loud and clear from, you know, it could be elected officials or or even the neighborhood themselves that they're looking for a traditional design, then we work with that. And, and in the cases where they're supportive of a more modern or contemporary design, I think the evaluation, we're happy to work with that. I think what we do, what you know, certainly what I try to do is look at distilling the, the project down into the core essential elements that make up the typical buildings found, you know, on that street in that neighborhood. So you, you do a quick analysis and you say, you know, you know, almost every house on the street's got a front porch, you know, a bay window, a pitched roof, you know, whatever those, those core features are. And then how do we make sure that whatever comes in, that's sort of the new building, the new face of it still, you know, if, if the common person, right, that not the non-architect neighbor could walk by and look at, and maybe has very contemporary materials, but those core essential elements, you know, there's some kind of a, mm -hmm. a take on a bay or there's, 
there's still a pitched roof, there's a porch element that's still there. They can recognize those features. And if if the typical person on the street can do that, I think you're 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 successful in ensuring that that building still has a relationship, maybe a little more distant relationship from the you know very traditional Victorian that maybe some folks were expecting, but it's visible, it's tangible, and you yeah. can understand it. I always think, uh, you know, I call them a copy-paste design. When you just take a building that looks like it could have been done in 1920 and you replicate that design and stamp it on a lot today, it's kind of boring. It's not It's not what I want to build necessarily, but it's kind of like hitting the ball down the middle. It makes me think of, I want to say Brooklyn, because a lot of people are up in arms about all the new development happening there. Not that it's anywhere, not happening anywhere else in New York, but I guess everybody likes the brownstones, right? There's a lot of brownstones, mm-hmm. a lot of it older buildings probably coming up on a hundred years old or more and they're being replaced by new buildings and everybody's all up in arms about it. Oh, they're ugly. They're gouty. They're terrible. They're too modern. But when those brownstones were built, what they replaced, everyone hated initially too. Oh, and they now replaced the farmland. Some of it. Yeah. And some <laughs> of it was just even older homes. And so, you know, I wonder if we're in that point where what we're building now will be like the new brownstone, not obviously brownstone, but you know what I mean? wonder if that's where things are headed. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think I also look at the evolution of the neighborhood. You know, typically you'll see, you know, these typical homes were built and inevitably they were added onto. And right, there's a rear addition, there's a side addition that people, you know, they enclosed the front porch that, you know, people were looking for more space. Maybe single families became two families. You know, you see a lot of that during the Great Depression, right? A lot of homes that were built for one family, all of a sudden need to take care of multiple families because mm-hmm. that was the the cost dynamic. And so evolution is a natural process. It's a natural part of the city. And I think what we're just trying to do is make sure that there, there's not a cliff that falls. You know, you can see that ev- natural evolution in a connected way from a home built today to the one built 100 years ago. It doesn't feel like something that oh, this was in a magazine in Florida and I'm just going to drop it next to your house. And, you know, because I honestly think the most interesting stuff is when you take that more modern home that that maybe is in Florida, mm-hmm. but now you have to customize it and make it a one-of-a-kind house that belongs in Boston, mm-hmm. but maybe has some of those new modern, you know, features or materials that aren't in Boston. And mm-hmm. now it's now it's this amazing mix of the two. Yeah. And you know, that's hard to do. So I think sure. where you where you get probably the most contention is an actual homeowner that wants to create a really modern building for themselves versus a developer who, you know, ultimately is either going to rent it or sell it. And they might have a little bit obviously have more flexibility when it comes to design, right? So if you have a homeowner that's gung-ho about I want a super modern glass structure you know, on my lot, you know, I assume that can be a a pretty big point of contention a lot of the time. Yeah, no, I've I've had just those kinds of cases. And, and, you know, you want to be sensitive to someone's home and, you know, maybe they've been saving up for years. And, and if they've gotten the blessing of the neighborhood district, or I mean, the neighborhood council, you have to work with that. Yeah, absolutely. See, my critique of, of sort of the neighborhood council, one of them is, we had Brian Gregory on, who's an urban planner, lives in the city. And he sort of said, look, if, if your Uncle Phil collapses on the sidewalk, you don't raise your hand and say, who's li- who's known Uncle Phil the longest? We need you to get over here and open his chest up. You call somebody who's studied this, who's educated on the topic, who's an absolute professional. And in our world, that's an urban planner. There are degrees for this. 
it seems like we pay such deference to Susie, who's lived on the block for her entire life. It doesn't make you more qualified to decide what the building should look like. I've had some of my friends or neighbors who who go to neighborhood meetings and get you know they've lived there 16 years and say, oh, you're you're new here. Now yeah. it's like, wow, yeah. how long do I have to live here to be <laughs> right. to be a right. local? So I, I I hear that, and I think a lot of us hear that. It's like that's my parking space. It's in front of my house. Well, actually, that's the road. It's public. It's, it's a neighborhood. It's a neighborhood, and you know, I think on the one hand, like we're really lucky to have such tight knit neighborhoods in our city that you know that don't exist in other cities. You're more transient, and people come and go, and no one quite takes that ownership over it. So mm-hmm. there's there's that upside to it, and I think you know we try to appreciate that. But obviously, there's some some folks who you know that's more about they don't want to see change, and and there's so much that's already changing. The city's growing a lot, and so it might just feel like too much, and and so yeah. maybe holding on to a more traditional design is a way to to at least keep it more familiar. And and we have to work with both both constituents. I mean, it is cliche, but the only cons- uh, constant is change in a city. And if if the problem is that we just don't live long enough to really step back and appreciate it. Maybe that's why there's so many global warming non-believers just haven't lived long enough. You know, I thought about that. Yeah, that's actually interesting. We mentioned parking and, and things like that. I think the city and whole and, and urban planning to what Mark was saying earlier, you know, has kind of taken a shift towards we shouldn't build cities around cars and prioritize cars. We should be prioritizing public transportation. Where does the BPTA uh, sit in, in relation to that discussion? Well, you know, it's usually in in the more you know the larger project article. We have a transportation team that's great in in you know whether it's um, ensuring you have a bike room on your first floor, uh, looking at the new Boston Transportation Department parking maximums, right, which is a new thing that's fairly recent. We're all working to really you know, and I think it's also about the housing crisis, right? If if we're making mm-hmm. room in these carving room out of these buildings for cars. Those are lost units, right? And how do we, you know, are we going to make room for for cars? Or are we going to make room for people? And I think yeah. it's all part of that. And, you know, the more cars you bring, the more congested the roads get because, you're, you know, we're not widening any of these roads. So I think it's all part of the conversation. And we have a great team that sits in and they're experts on this. Definitely. And what about, I guess, public education on that theory, though, because I feel that Again, a huge point of contention in a lot of these community discussions is around parking. And a lot, you know, at least for us, a lot of projects that we've brought before neighborhoods. It's truly the first thing we design around, right? right. When someone says, how many units can you get out of this lot? I respond with, well, how many parking spots can you fit? Correct. Yeah. And and, and a lot of times we'll we'll go in and we'll say, hey, we're going to propose, you know, nine units with 13 parking spots. And... You know, the community's up in arms and says, that's not enough. It's not enough. And the you requirement know? is we want it. one-to-one, right? The requirement's one-to-one, yeah. but, you know, they're like, you know, they're three-bedroom units. Everyone, every bedroom is going to have a car. Like, that's their yeah, and, oh, that's and a their parts just, car. Yeah, everyone's going to have, right? have a car, and they're all going to have <laughs> guests over all at the same time. Yeah, every bedroom <laughs> equates to a vehicle. This may be folklore, but the old uh, the guy at the community meeting, well, obviously you have two cars, and then you have a, par- you have a parts car. Everyone's yeah. got a parts car. <laughs> I've never heard that one. So how do you kind of balance that thought process with community engagement and community involvement and most likely commu- more like during the discussion, more so the community education? 
Yeah, I mean, we we talk a lot about, you know, I'm working on the, the Western Avenue corridor planning. And one of the big hallmarks is we talk about, you know, there is a study done by Boston Transportation Department called Go Boston 2030. And it talked about how do we meet these climate goals? How do we, you know, how do we get how do we get mode shift? How do we get people who are in single occupancy cars and onto either transit, bikes, pedestrians? How do, you know, what are the other modes that we can get folks into? And we explain, and sometimes it's, if you're a car lover, the more cars that come here are, are actually going to make it harder for you to get around because again, the streets aren't getting any bigger. And so you, you may be that, that person who needs a car, you know, maybe you know, obviously there's seniors and folks who aren't going to be on bikes and it's a legitimate issue, but I think we try to get people to think bigger picture that, mm-hmm. that, you know, if you bring a bunch of people here that, you know, and you have condos that require parking, right. That's going to drive those prices up. It's going to bring people who, who definitely will be driving because yeah. they're paying a significant amount. And now you're encouraging a lot of congestion. And, and is that really what you want? And I think we try to have those conversations both in our planning initiatives, also, you know, in our community meetings and I think it's gotten better. I really do. It's not not to say that there certainly aren't projects where and meetings where folks are very insistent, but I can tell you about a couple of projects in Andrew Square, right in the square in South Boston, both of them with zero parking. Right. And that that would have been unheard of even five, six years ago. So I think yeah. it's getting better, but you're right. It, it's still something we hear. It's like our highways. If you add a lane, you'll just invite more cars. Yeah. You don't reduce the traffic. You just every you know lane and... So yeah, I was in Phoenix and there were six lanes plus a hub lane and there was still traffic during the week. It was crazy. I've never heard it called hub, H-O-V. H-O-V. I just call it hub. Interesting. Wow. Matt, what do you call it? Give some love to the hub, right? H-O-V, but I've heard hub. Um, hub. All right. Well, hey, tomato, tomato. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I was going somewhere. I apologize. I did it. You derailed derailed the conversation. I'm good at that. Oh, I know. Let me do it again. You know, we were talking uh, the other day about sort of attention with projects in their infancy. As we're developing a project, we sort of have an incentive not to engage our various consultants and engineers because we don't really know what that building is going to totally look like if it's approved, it's approvable, et cetera. So often a, a project may come out of the Board of Appeals with variances granted, but it hasn't really been that well thought through and it presents problems down the line as people start to like look at the practical things required in a building. Can you give us some examples of that and maybe some tips to our listeners? I think this is something we've seen more. And, and it's also part of it is land costs are up, construction costs are up. Mm-hmm. Folks are, are trying to get more onto that parcel than maybe they would have 10 years ago when, when costs were a little bit lower. Sure. And so we're seeing a lot of tight sites that are, whether it's the parking, especially the first floor, right? The first floor if you're a larger project, now you got to have your bike room on the first floor. So yeah. that's taking up some of your room. You, you've got the parking that maybe folks in the neighborhood wanted to see. And then all of a sudden, you know, you talk to Eversource, and, and this is fairly recent. I'm going to say only a few years ago, six, seven, nine unit buildings would get their service from the poles for, for electricity. And now even five unit, I think Mark mentioned even four unit buildings. In certain neighborhoods. In certain neighborhoods. So the, you know, and and that's, you know, a bigger issue where we're seeing a lot more and, and part of our environmental standards are looking for electrification of, of new buildings to reduce, you know, emissions and, and meet some of our zero net carbon goals. So that's absolutely an issue. And frankly, when you look at what it takes to, if you don't have room outside the building, 
what it takes, you know, three hour firewall walls and all the rest yeah. for means of egress for a transformer room, you start to realize you have a problem real quick. And, you know, um, the gas meters now have to be outside your building that didn't used yeah. to be that way. So that's Could've another put them in your thing. basement back in the day. Yep. And, yeah. and then the stormwater recharge, I think that's a big one that, you know, I think we're getting a lot more advocacy for trees to, for environmental reasons yeah. to, to combat heat Island. And, you know, when you want to put a stormwater infiltration system in your backyard, it means that that hundred year old yeah. tree that's sitting there can't coexist with that stormwater infiltration system. So now where are you going to put that? And I think definitely I recommend that folks reach out earlier than later to, to these engineers that can help yeah. them with these things. I so, definitely think through the utilities at a minimum. If you do nothing but decide, if you have to have a transformer, where would it go? Where will my gas meters go? And I have a lot of electric panels. So just to confirm on that, for for the scenario that Mark just described, where BPDA is required as part of a proviso, part of an approval from the zoning board in this particular- Proviso or proviso? proviso. I don't know. I've heard it both ways. Hmm. So is a good pro tip or recommendation to just reach out to BBDA and say, hey, you know, we're going through the community process. You know, we'd love some thoughts and feedback. Should that happen concurrently with the community process, even though it may not be required? Let me piggyback on that, too, because the BBDA makes a recommendation on all projects that go to the Board of Appeals. So though you may not have sat with an urban planner or looked at this, someone at the agency has looked at it. There is something to be said there. It'd be nice if, if we could chat before the ZBA, but perhaps that's not practical. Well, I mean, it's certainly not something that we would ever discourage. We're Mm -hmm. always there and we're happy to take calls. And especially when you get into like a conundrum where, you know, neighborhood wants parking and the city doesn't and, you know, and and Mm -hmm. you have some of those, you're caught in the middle as as that, you know, and so I think that's always wise to reach out and and if if that's helpful, but obviously not every project. I, Mm -hmm. I think I would mention too, that those planning recommendations are really they're based on zoning. Yeah. So they're not getting into the design of, you know, contemporary versus modern or any of the things that we just talked about. They're really talking about they're evaluating what the zoning says. They're looking at what the existing norm is in terms of what's in the neighborhood versus mm-hmm. what it says in zoning. And they're looking at, you know, is this more or less compatible with what's what's in the existing context? And if so, they'll make a positive recommendation based on zoning, but they're yeah. really not making. Because that that person is a planner who's making that recommendation, whereas you're more of an urban uh, design uh, review right. architect. So, yeah, so our yeah. department is the urban design department, planning yeah. department will make the, th- there may be a design element to uh-huh. it, to the recommendation, but it's, it's mostly focused on a zoning recommendation because they're, yeah. they're recommending it to the Zoning Board of Appeals for those variances. And it also doesn't need to be a surprise on the day of your hearing. It is publicly available. The BPDA board uh, approves all of the various recommendations prior to the hearing. So you can reach out and find out what the uh, verdict was. And if you think there's an interesting point, Maybe, maybe that is good practice to reach out ahead of uh, the review a few weeks prior. Take a quick break from our episode to recognize our sponsor, First Boston Capital Partners. Uh, Dave Grossman, who joined us on the pod recently uh, as a principal there, leads a great team, very fast and flexible. Uh, if you need financing to build your building, uh, reach out. We'd love to give you an introduction. So as far as your initial review, so you know we're ZBA, so this is for a smaller project, right? We're ZBA approved. We bring you a set of plans or drawings. What is your initial, I guess, 
checklist or what does your initial review look like? What are some things that we could be doing better when we bring you that set to elicit fewer comments? Well, the first thing we do is look at the written decision from the board. So you want to make sure you have that. And um, usually on the last page, there'll be a proviso where they will write out whatever the board is asking us to specifically look at. And we have a um, liaison at the board hearings that will may, may even elaborate more on that. So I feel like sometimes the developer may not actually be at the hearing. They may have had their attorney attend the hearing. They may not know what was said or any details. And it was left to the attorney and the attorney never really followed up. And so sometimes it seems like the first time they're hearing that, oh, the, the board put a proviso on here to, you know, screen your parking and change the materials and, and reduce the amount of asphalt and improve your landscaping. And none of that's been done in the plans that I'm getting. You start to wonder, was, was this just a miscommunication or was this, or sometimes you wonder, oh, maybe they're just um, sending in these plans because they want to get all the comments beyond that, those comments and then make one round of changes with their architect in order to you know, keep costs down. And that's fine, but you don't know unless someone tells you. So I think that's always good to, to have that communication of, yes, I'm submitting these plans. I'm aware of the provisos from the board. We're going to be doing X, Y, and Z. So now I don't have to tell you about all those things that, that obviously the board's recommended because you're, I know you're doing them or sounds somehow like, communicate that. I think that's always a helpful first thing. And then, sounds like a cover letter, basically. Like, hey, here's hmm. how the whole process went. Here's what we did. Here's what was brought up at all these various meetings. And here's where we're at. Yeah. And I mean, ideally, you would you would um, reflect those in your plan so that that we don't have to wonder about how exactly you're executing those or how you're you know, meeting those requirements. But that's the very first thing. And then the next thing, I typically go on a Google Street View and Google Maps and get a sense of what the context is around it, because that's really important as to evaluating, OK, what is the norm for this street? What is the norm for this neighborhood? And what is there something here that that would influence, you know, OK, you know, I, I'm noticing these common elements that I was talking about before. Maybe your house doesn't have those and would benefit from, from maybe making some of those additions. So I think and then as we get further in, we're checking for coordination. I mean, I can tell you many times <laughs> the engineer has drawn one site plan from four community meetings ago. Mm -hmm. And now the architect has the updated one uh, that's the buildings now changed and, and through negotiations and the plans are not coordinated. And so yeah. you can help yourself streamline the process if you're making sure that, you know, the engineering plan, you know, you're submitting or you're, again, you're explaining, okay, hey, I haven't updated my engineering plan, but it will be. And that's, you know, versus yeah. me just wondering if this is just not the most coordinated group and needs, you know, extra, <laughs> extra help. So a, a steel column coming straight through a parking space that does not appear on the architecturals. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good point. And to Mark's, Mark's earlier point, but in terms of just the overall process, right? So, you, you know, you may have BPDA involved after your zoning board meeting, but at the same time, you may want to get your utility plans going. Cause at least here, it could be, you know, up to three months before you get comments back. So some of these things have to happen in tandem and yeah. That's good advice, though, on the cover letter. I hadn't thought to do that, but maybe I will start. With that, why don't we go to a quick round of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Familiar with the rules? I think I've heard it a few times. All right. All right. right. I'll, I'll kick it off here. Thin brick. 
I felt like you were going to say that one. <laughs> <laughs> what is thin brick to you? It's just a veneer almost? Yeah, essentially. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's not a full brick. It's like, yeah. uh, it's, it's applied just almost like a, it. like a tile. Yeah. But it's on, sometimes they're on sheets. Yes. You, yeah. Sheets. Mm -hmm. Well, I honestly don't know how most people think about it to determine whether it's, but to me, it's definitely overrated. I, I think it's forbidden. No, it's definitely against our, our policy guidelines. Yeah. I think we've seen enough failures. I, if I, if I drove, took a little trip with you around the city, I could point out a number of projects where you can see the, the failure points that are already starting. Yeah. I, there's one I can think of in particular where you know, a lot of times we're looking at, we're talking about light wood frame structures yes. that, that typically shrink, right? So mm -hmm. whatever the height of that wall is, you know, that 10 foot floor to floor, it's going to shrink by across the whole building. It's going to amount to a few inches, right? And a lot of time the thin brick is not going to be able to shrink hmm. with the structure, right? And, and so unless you provide a whole bunch of expansion joints and, mm -hmm. and now you've got expansion joints with brick or you may just have failures. It's a very, so I think what we try to do is, and this is actually true with all materials, we would rather have you do simple and straightforward and just let it be what it is and have it be well detailed and well done and, and just be a simpler product. Then maybe sometimes we have developers where they think they're going to build a million dollar building, but what they actually can afford is much less and they try to make it look like it's something mm -hmm. far more than it is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that's where you get into these issues where it's, you know, you're trying to make something it's not mm -hmm. work. And oftentimes it doesn't work in the long term. I'll go with mansard roofs. Mansard roofs. You know, I like mansard roofs if they're done well, but to do them well, that's exactly like what I was just saying. Uh, and to do them well often impacts your floor plan because they need to angle into the space. I think people don't, I think what happens a lot is a developer is asked to do a mansard roof and is not nearly aware of all the complexities to do them well, maybe by a community group. And it becomes a, a far bigger task than the, what they yeah. thought it would be. Especially yeah, if you want real slate. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so exactly the example, we'd rather have you just do a simple straight wall uh -huh. well done than to do a faux mansard that doesn't look convincing it's good so appropriately rated i guess yeah Over, yeah and yeah. depending on it who's de building it it really <laughs> depends yeah, yeah i think that might be a lot of these <laughs> go ahead Ray. how about uh juliet balconies Juliet balconies i guess appropriately rated i mean they could be a nice element to the especially if you have a really flat building that just needs some some articulation and some interest, and and that's the way to get some some movement. You know, I think we've been seeing some some much flatter buildings that that don't have the interest and the movement that maybe we saw in the past. So I think that could be a way of of doing. And it's often a way that um, it's a a selling feature, right, for for developers who who like it. So it's something they're they're happy to do, and we're happy. You know, or whether it could be a real balcony too. Absolutely, roof decks. Roof deck, you know, I don't think we have a strong opinion. It's usually the neighborhood huh. who has a strong opinion on because typically we just design them to be invisible, to pull them back from the edges of the roof. Yeah. And they don't have an impact one way or another. Mm -hmm. So it's typically the neighbors who have a They're lot of opinions. They're a bit opinions. of a lightning rod. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Solar panels. Solar panels are great. I think, you know, some people don't understand the complexity, again, of solar panels and, you know, We've had folks, you know, come in where 
you know, they don't have the space. You need certain efficiency of layout to do them, you know, in a way that actually makes sense. So you really have to coordinate all of your, you know, if you got a whole bunch of mini split compressors mm -hmm. up there and now you've got the roof deck that you <laughs> for condo number 21 mm -hmm. and, and then you, you told everyone you're doing solar panels and now you've got room for like four solar panels. It doesn't, <laughs> yeah. doesn't make a lot of yeah. sense. So you, again, you need to think through them from the get go. I just don't like the way they, on a pitched roof, I just think they're ugly. They're saving the environment, Dan. Mm. Saving the world. I've seen they're they're now the Tesla saved. shingles are cool. Yeah, that's where I was going. Yeah, those are super expensive, but they're so cool. It's all going to come down. I think they that technology cool. is all going to change. I mean, yeah. it is so fast. I, I want to stay in the electric realm of things. How about um, exterior EV chargers? Exterior for uh, your car. I guess EV chargers in general, but if it was inside a garage, it wouldn't matter. I, I think more from how the BPDA or or an exterior design reviewer would look at. An EV charger, just in general, whether it's pole mounted or on the building or something, it's providing that because everybody's getting Required electric vehicles now. and they're going crazy. Um, they are. Yeah. Any yeah. thresholds or? There is a percent, you know, that keeps changing. Uh, it had been 25%. There's a certain percentage you have to install today. And then there's another percentage that have to be EV ready. So you've wired them, but may not actually activate them. Can't remember the numbers, but uh, it is part of. Our standards so absolutely very supportive of those yeah so you have to uh size your electrical service accordingly but now it's a balancing act because you're trying right. to get away from cars but you're trying to be more sustainable and put in electric car chargers yeah right. so it's like it's lots away, of transformations you and then, you, the then you're putting all this uh demand on the grid and it's then you're also act. saying are we going to get away from natural gas you think is the city yes yeah that's the way it's going Just like other places oh, i think yeah. brookline did that right yeah. yes New, New York, York City's doing it. It's do wild. It. We're definitely trying to limit, you know, um, emissions. And that's really, you know, there's a currently we're setting a zero net carbon uh, approach to, you know, our, our Article 80 process. And I think you're going to see a lot more along. But that's that's kind of the when you look at the the different mechanicals and, and different ways you can reduce your carbon, that's like the the low hanging fruit. That's the first easy thing you can do that will immediately reduce your carbon load. And so, you know, I think that's that's why it, we're seeing so many projects go uh, with electrification. Vinyl windows. Vinyl windows. We are not big fans. They have to be wood now. I keep getting provisos for wood windows. Well, it could be fiberglass. Fiberglass is okay. Oh, good. I think what we look at with the vinyl is it's a very soft plastic. And so... You know, we, as you know, we've, we, you know, improved a lot of the um, insulation standards. We're trying to make tighter buildings that, that use less carbon, right? Less mm -hmm. energy so that we have, you know, lower mechanical loads, all those things. It's all part of the, our review. And, you know, if you look at it, they just move the movement of those windows after seven, yeah. eight, nine years, there's going to be a lot of gaps it's True, and you're going to end up with a lot of drafts coming through those windows. Whereas a fiberglass window is similar. It's just much more stable. Yeah, so yeah. you don't get the expansion and contraction. Right. Liter yes. Literally to at least one time, either in the extreme cold or the extreme heat, you'll hear from some tenants like, Hey, I can't close my window, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's probably exactly why. Yeah. Is that movement? Exactly. Also, your carpenter didn't square the opening, but it could, it could be a <laughs> multitude of things. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not uh, blaming just the material yeah. there. <laughs> You're upright. No, I'm all set. I, I think I asked everything there. Awesome.
Awesome, Matt. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really fun. Thanks for having me. This was, was enjoyable. Thanks. If anyone wants to get in touch with you as a question about a project. Or the BPDA in general. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You can send me an email, Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N at boston.gov, G-O-V. And our website is bostonplans.org. So just like it sounds. Perfect. Great. Thank well, you so it's really much. educational. We really appreciate it. And thanks everybody for listening, sharing, subscribing, referring, suggesting, whatever you'd like to do. Interact with us. Mark, how do we get in, how do people get in touch with us? I feel like we never include that. We always have our guests, but how do they reach out to us for suggestions or feedback? Yeah, Instagram, real estate addicts uh, on IG. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. See everybody on the next one. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Bye. Thanks, everybody.